Well, I hope that you had an opportunity to read out of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, we're going to look at the very uh, the whole thing, but really I want us to look at verse 14. We talked a little bit about it last week, but I want us to dig into it just a little bit more. So let me read it, and then we're going to go right back to the table and continue our discussion that we had last week on this verse. It says, But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him ruler, him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. So this is Samuel talking to Saul, and he's basically telling him, listen, big boy, your time of ruling is over. And the Lord is bringing another man who is a man after his own heart. And so last week we asked the question, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? But what I did was I challenged you to go home and read 1 Samuel 13, to look at it, to pray about it, and try to come up with what does that mean? What does it mean when God said he found a man after his own heart? I want us to define that a little bit and talk about it a little bit around the table, and then we're going to bring it back in just a moment. Uh, actually, I'm going to have a timer up there. I got it, Mr. Upchurch. I got you. Okay, here's your timer, okay? So we're going to start it here in uh, three, two, one, go. All right, gentlemen, well, let's bring it back to the uh, platform. And now what I want us to do is uh, I just want to hear what you heard at your table. So if someone heard something really good at your table, I just want you to kind of yell it out popcorn style. Somebody say something really good at your table. Willing to obey. Great. Love it. Excellent. What else? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Good. Good. What else? Love God's laws. Yeah. Yeah, go read the psalm that David wrote, Psalm 119. There's a few things in there about the law. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Woo, what you talking about? That's right. Seeking the approval over, of God rather than seeking the approval of man. Yeah, that is totally countercultural. All right, what else? Give me, give me one or two more. That's right. Completely yielding your will to his will. God, it's what you want, not what I want. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One more. Give me one more. Right here. Obedience. Absolutely. Obedience. Well, let's look up. Let's back up a couple verses, and let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. It says, He, now this is Saul, waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So now, where do, where do we get this? What does it mean when it says that Samuel had not yet come back as it had been appointed? Where does he get that from? Well, you got to back up three more chapters. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8. Samuel says to Saul, Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. So now what, what, what happens? Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, he says, listen, you go to Gilgal ahead of me. After seven days, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to offer these burnt offerings, and I'm going to show you exactly what to do. But we find in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8, it says, he, Saul, waited seven days for that appointed time. So here's what happened. Saul got in a little bit of a rush. Now, I know none of us in this room would ever get in a hurry or get ahead of what God calls us to do, but this is exactly what happens here because it says 
He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So what happened was they started losing faith because it looked like they were going to get taken over, and so the troops were literally deserting him. They were crossing the river. They were running and hiding. They were getting out of Dodge. Verse 9, so, Paul, so Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Now remember, Samuel specifically told him, I'm going to come and meet you, and I will offer them up, and I will show you what to do. Saul got ahead of him. Verse 10, just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Now I want you to catch that because I think it's very important. How long after he gave the burnt offering was it that Samuel came? It says right afterwards, Samuel was, or Saul was in such a hurry, he just barely missed that moment. And I can think in my own life how many times I've tried to take matters in my own hands, and I wonder if I just missed the Lord's timing just by a moment. Just by a moment. You know, in our house, half obedience is disobedience. Three-fourths obedience is disobedience. You have to be completely in obedience, and, and he didn't wait. And Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think any of us in this room are big and tough enough to handle the Lord being really honest with us and saying, if you would have waited, I had this for you. I don't think we could handle it. Listen to what Saul missed out on. Samuel literally said, had you just waited, you would have permanently been in this spot. But because you didn't wait, verse 14's coming. Because you didn't obey, because you weren't willing to wait, because you disobeyed, the Lord has somebody else that's a man after his own heart that he's going to put in your place. And so we find ourselves in 14. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. You have not done what the Lord commanded. You know, it's interesting as individuals, as people, as men, what we normally do is look at the outward appearance. We look at people's actions, but where does the Lord look? We know he does. As a matter of fact, he tells Samuel as he's getting ready to anoint David, that's exactly what he does. In chapter 16, verse 7, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart. Well, if the Lord sees the heart and he is punishing Saul because of outward disobedience, why is that? It's in his heart. You've heard Brother Steve say it, and I think Dr. Rogers said it, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. There's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It's in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. It says, out of the mouth of the righteous flows the well of life, but out of the mouth of the wicked flows destruction. 
out of the mouth of the righteous flows the well of life or the fountain of life, the CSB version says. What does it mean? It means what's inside of you is going to come out and what comes out of the righteous person, are you ready for this? Is exactly what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, I am the living water. And if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. And so, gentlemen, if that's what we're putting inside, that's what's going to come out. And what came out of Saul was disobedience. Now, I know what you're thinking, but now hold up. David disobeyed as well. There's that little thing with Bathsheba and having her husband killed and all of that. But let's look at the difference in their response when confronted. In a few weeks, we'll look at when Nathan, the prophet, came and confronted David after Bathsheba, after his adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. And what does David do in his response to that? He repents. He repents. As a matter of fact, Psalm 51 is packed full of some of the most beautiful words I believe ever penned. Some of the greatest imagery. Because what you see is a broken man. You see a man that realizes he has done wrong before a holy God and he's repenting. Saul doesn't do that. When Saul's confronted by Samuel, he says, what, did, what have you done? You've been foolish. He immediately says, well, this was happening and this was happening. And what is he doing? He's justifying his sin. He's justifying his disobedience. David didn't do that. David didn't do that. So here's the first thing I want you to see tonight. When we talk about a man after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart is an obedient man. He's an obedient man. He's a man that follows what the Lord says. He's a man that reads the word, and when it says to do this, he does it. And when it says don't do this, he doesn't do it. You say, well, I'm not that man because I've sinned, and I've got problems and issues and struggles but the difference is, if you stay in that, then you become like Saul, unrepentant. We're going to sin. Dr. Rogers said, when you become a Christian, you don't become sinless, but you should sin less. And as that sanctification process continues in your life, you should, in theory, see less and less sin in your own life. Let me tell you how my prayer life's changed in the past uh, probably uh, 24 months I have stopped praying that the Lord would convict me of my sin when I do it. I've started praying, Lord, convict me of the sin when it's just a thought in my mind. Before I even commit that sin, I want you just to wipe it away. Before I even say that word or do that action, I want you to so convict me. I do not want to follow through with that sin. And that's just what the Lord's doing in my life. But it's an obedient man. I want you to understand this. Obedience is a byproduct of love. When you love somebody, you obey them. Now, when I was a young boy, my father had a paddle. Now, I don't know if any of you got whipped in your house, and if you don't think whipping's okay, then I'm sorry. My daddy believed in whipping, okay? And I'm talking about whipping. All right, I'm talking about whoopings, okay? I'm talking about the time that my mom would whip me and then say, now when your dad gets home, he's going to finish it, okay? That kind of deal. And he had a paddle that he had whittled out of a two-by-four, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I could take you. He still got it at his house. I think he thinks, you know, you're 38, but if you get out of line, I'm coming after you. And as a young boy, I was terrified of that paddle. Horrified, Sammy. 
I, I don't know if you know this, my, my wife has a pain tolerance on a scale of 1 to 10 of a 10. She can handle anything. Only time I've ever seen her cry over pain is when she had four kidney stones that she was dealing with at the same time and they were moving around. I have a pain tolerance of about a .5, okay? I don't like anything about it. I didn't play football. The coach kept coming to the basketball court. He kept saying, Derek, will you play wide receiver for me? I said, listen, <laughs> you want me to do what? You want me to run down the field, hold out my hands, catch the football, and let all those other 11 men run after and try to tackle me? I'm not stupid. Now, I love to watch football, but I don't want to be any part of it, okay? I'm going to stay up in the stands because I'm afraid to get hurt. And those of you who know me know I get hurt all the time. When I saw that paddle, I was horrified. And my mom and dad would say that I was one of the most obedient young men ever. It was not because... I loved them. It was not because I was seeking their approval. It was not because I wanted to do what was right. It was because I was scared to death of that paddle. About the age of 11 or 12, I really realized that my relationship with my dad, that he was my best friend. We did everything together. And my love for my father grew. And I can remember one time when I was about 12 years old, he told me not to do something, and I did it anyways. And that night I laid in my bed knowing that he was going to find out, and I could care less about the paddle. All I could think about was letting my father down. All I could think about was disappointing my dad. See, my love for him had grew so much that I wanted to obey. I wanted to express that love through an action. And that's what obedience is. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not probably will keep my commandments. Not hopefully you're going to keep my commandments. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, I'm studying Greek right now, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you, in seminary, and I'm failing, okay? All right, I've made A's and B's and everything. I've gotten to Greek, and I'm failing right now. I'm struggling. Chad, I'm struggling. All right, I'm going to get there. I'm praying hard. I'm staying up late. I'm studying. But I do know a little bit. And when I look at this verse, that word will right there is future active indicative second person plural. You say, what in the world does that mean, and what does it have to do with anything? I'll just give you just a hint. It says it's future active. In other words, it's not a one-time deal. Obedience is not when I get saved, I'm done obeying. That's just the beginning. It means that I'm not only going to obey now, I'm going to obey in the future. And it says it's second person plural. In other words, he's talking you. He's talking to me. And he's saying, y'all, if you love God, you will obey his commands. You will. David wrote in Psalm 119, and he talked all about God's laws. As a matter of fact, there's 150 verses in the chapter, and there's only about three of them that don't mention laws, precepts, or something talking about God's law. And the couple verses that don't actually mention it are pointing to another verse that does. Listen to what it says in Psalm 119 too. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping your word? Look at verse 11. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's all about his law. And David had a desire to obey that law because he wanted to live out his love. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 25 through 27 says, let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. 
Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet away from evil. And then a verse very similar found in Isaiah that you'll hear our pastor quote so very often is Isaiah verse 30, chapter 30, verse 21. I pray this every single morning over my family. I, I want to I encourage you with something. I want to encourage you when you get up in the morning just to get you a habit and stick with it with your prayer life. One of the things I do before I get out of bed, I say, Lord, just thank you for giving me another day. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you. And then I get out of the bed, and as I brush my teeth, I just start talking to the Lord. And as I get dressed this morning, I do this very thing. I put on my pants, and I put on my belt, and as I put on my belt, I said, Lord, today I put on the belt of truth. And I put on my shirt, and I buttoned it up. I said, Lord, today I put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm in there combing my hair, and I said, today I put on the helmet of salvation. And I walked through those pieces. And that's something I do every morning, and I pray that over my family. But this is a verse I pray every single morning. Isaiah 30, 21. And whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Here's how I pray it every morning. Lord, today I pray in the Ewalt household. Myself, Sharin, Camden, Maddie, Josiah, and Chloe will not turn to the left or to the right unless we hear your voice say, this is the way, walk in it. May we walk with you today, Lord. That's how I pray it. Very short, very sweet, very simple. But the reality is Saul did not do this. Saul took matters into his own hands, and when confronted with it, what did he do? He justified it, and he complained. So what we need to do now when we talk about this idea of obedience is we need to answer a question. Why is obedience so important? And why do we struggle with it? Now, specifically, I'm not talking in general. I'm saying as men, as men, why do we struggle with obeying? Now, listen, this could be your boss. This could be when you were growing up. This could be with the Lord. But why is it a struggle oftentimes for us to obey? So I want you to talk around the table, and I want you to answer the question, why is obedience so important, and why do we struggle so much with it? Ready, set, go. All right, guys, let's bring it back to the platform. Somebody, somebody just yell it out. What, what's, what's one of the reasons that obedience is so important? Not, not a right or wrong answer here, but what would you hear around your table? Okay, it keeps you alive, being obedient. What else? It pleases God. Yeah, it's good. It's good. What's that? A reward? Yeah, the Lord, the Lord blesses obedience, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. What, what, why, why else is it important to obey? Whew. Consequences are rough, aren't they? They can be. I mean, you look. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was just telling one of the guys in the back. And I think about right there in the beginning. I mean, he literally told them you can do whatever you want. Just this one thing. Just this one thing. Don't do that. And they did it anyways. And look at the consequences that we're still seeing today. One more. Do what's that? He did. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we, we see that, that there's a uh, what you sow, you will reap, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then I heard one in the back. It's his will. I love that. I love that response specifically. I love all of them, but I really... I love that because if we want to please God, yeah, if we want to be at peace with God, obedience is a step towards that. So when we look at this, a man after God's own heart is an obedient man. 
Secondly, a man after God's own heart is a man of faith. Is a man of faith. I want you to think about David for a minute. I want you to think about now, I don't know how old David was when he fought Goliath, but they believe that he wasn't very old. They believe he was like a young teenager, okay? So let's just say he's 13, 14 years old, 15. My son turns 14 on Monday, okay? I can't even comprehend him going and fighting another 14-year-old, let alone a giant. And what does, what does David do when he gets there? We, we see in 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 36 and 37. He's talking to Saul because basically Saul says, you're out of your mind. Why in the world would you fight him? And listen to what David says. He says, your servant, talking about himself, has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of of this Philistine. The Lord had prepared him. He had seen God work. He had seen God's faithfulness, and he had faith in what he had seen. I want you to think back for just a moment about when you first gave your life to the Lord. Why don't you think about that? Some of you may sit in here and say, well, I've never given my life to the Lord. Uh, what, what, exactly, what exactly do you mean by that? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on, but for those of you that have, there's been a time in your life where you've repented of your sins, you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead to save you, and you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want you to think about how excited you were. I want you to go back for that moment. I could take you to the place in Rogers, Arkansas, in the first bedroom on the left, in the hallway to the left of the living room, and I could take you to the exact spot where I remember giving my life to Jesus. And I don't think you have to remember the exact spot. I do. I remember that exact spot, and I, I remember just telling my dad, I can be honest with you, I was on the playground that day, R.E. Baker Elementary School in Bentonville, Arkansas, and I was on the monkey bars going that way, and there was a boy coming on the monkey bars going this way, and this is the exact words he said to me, Mason. He said, now listen, I, I, I'm just telling you what he said, okay, just to prepare you, there's something in here that we probably shouldn't say, well, you shouldn't say. This is exactly what he said. He said, get the H-E-L-L out of my way. He said, because if you don't, that's where you're going. Well, that night, I went home and told my dad what happened. My dad said, well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? And I said, no. He said, what'd you do? I said, I got out of the way. <laughs> I ain't going to mess with that dude. I don't like pain, you know. But he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, what does it mean to go to a place like that? What, what, what does that mean? And we walked through the gospel. And I had heard it many times, and that night I gave my life to Jesus, Al. I remember specifically because it dawned on me that if I died, I was going to spend an eternity separated from God forever and ever. And I remember that. Last July, I celebrated 30 years of being a Christian. And I got alone with the Lord just for a little bit, and I, I can be just transparent with you. I just wept. Because I could look back over 30 years and just see God's faithfulness. I see the times that my mom and dad set us down, my sister and I down before Christmas and said, listen, there's no money this year. There's no Christmas presents. That's not what Christmas is about anyways, is it? And on Christmas morning, wake up and somebody in our church would have dropped Christmas presents off on the front porch. I've seen God's faithfulness. I remember when I was 13 years old and my dad and I were on the back porch after cutting the grass 
And I remember when he said, I sure could go for some homemade ice cream. And I remember telling my dad, because we had no money, and when I mean no money, we had no money. I said, Dad, I've never had homemade ice cream, and to be perfectly honest with you guys, I hadn't ever had much store-bought ice cream either. I said, Dad, what's homemade ice cream like? And he began to describe it to me and its goodness and its creaminess and how you make it and everything that goes into it. I said, Dad, I would love to have some homemade ice cream. And he said, well, I'd love to give you some, but we don't have the money for a machine, and we don't have the money probably to put anything inside of it. And my dad, always looking for a teaching opportunity, said, but you know what, son? He was in seminary at Mid-America at the time. He said, you know what I want you to do? I just want you to pray that the Lord would provide for our family a homemade ice cream maker. And I will never forget my response to him. I said, Dad, I don't think God cares if I have an ice cream maker. My dad's response was this. You may be right. He may not care that you have an ice cream maker. But I know this. God cares that you know he hears you when you pray. So I want you to take two weeks. I just want you to pray about it. Just ask the Lord to show himself to you. So I did. I started. I prayed for a week. At the end of that week, we were cutting grass again on Saturday morning, sitting on the back porch, drinking ice water. He said, have you been praying for the ice cream maker? I said, yeah. And he said, really? Have you really been praying for it? I said, well, I'll be honest, Dad. I've been praying throw-up prayers. Now, they sound gross because they really are. A throw-up prayer is when you throw up a prayer and you hope that something happens, but you plan as if nothing will. How many times you prayed a prayer like that? And my dad said, I, this week I want you to really pray that God will show himself to you. And so I prayed. Saturday I prayed. Sunday I prayed. Monday I prayed. I'm not talking about before breakfast, lunch, and I'm talking about I was praying. Lord, I, I don't know if you're listening to me. I don't know if you care. But would you show yourself to me? Monday came and passed. Tuesday came and passed. I went to bed that night. Home phone rang about 11 o'clock at night. Guy on the other end of the phone said, hey, Kenneth, that's my dad. He said, I know you don't remember me. I was a homeless man that you picked up off the side of the road about a year ago. And he said, I don't know if you remember, but you shared the gospel with me, and you took me down to the Memphis Union Mission. You dropped me off. He said, I went to the Memphis Union Mission. He said, I want you to know I quit doing drugs. I got sober. I got saved. I graduated the program. I left the mission. I got a job. I got an apartment. I started dating a girl. I'm going to church downtown, and they're letting me help out with second grade boys Sunday school. I don't even know what I'm doing, but I'm having the time of my life. He said, I've, I'm learning from the second graders. He said, but the night I came home from work, and I was robbed. And when I say I was robbed, they took every stick of everything out of my apartment, every fork, every knife, every shirt, the couch, the TV, everything. He said, is there any way you could come pick me up and take me to my brother's house because I can't get a hold of him, and I'm afraid these guys may come back. My dad got in his car. He drove downtown. By now, it's midnight. He picks the guy up. My dad will tell the story and say, when the man came and sat in my car, he said, I don't know that I had ever seen him in my life. And he set a box in the back seat. My dad drove from downtown all the way out to Oakland. And the whole way out there, that man talked about the goodness of God. And he kept thanking my dad over and over and over for my dad's investment in his life. They got to the place. My dad drops him off. He gets out of the car, and he says, oh, Kenneth, I forgot to tell you. When I was waiting on you to come pick me up, I, I looked in the little attic in the closet in my bedroom in that one-bedroom apartment, and I've never been up there, but I thought, you know what, maybe somebody that lived here before me left something up there. He said, there's this old dirty box up there, and he said, now listen, it's just an old ice cream maker. 
He said, now, actually, it's brand new, but it's from like 1965, okay? It's just been up there. I know telling how long it's been up there. He said, listen, will you take it as a thank you because it's the only thing I have left in this life? My dad couldn't answer him. <laughs> Had tears coming down his eyes. He got in his car, and he drove back to our house in Fraser on University Street. And he walked in my bedroom, and he shook my leg. I turned my little lamp on, and as I sat up, I saw tears in my dad's eyes, which I've seen twice in my life. And this is what he said. He said, son, tonight God wants you to know he loves you. Tonight God wants you to know he hears you when you pray. Tonight God gave you an ice cream maker. And that next Saturday, my dad shared the story with some friends at work. They gave him the money. We made some homemade ice cream. Now, I got to tell you three things about this story. Number one, I did not pray specifically because I did not pray for an electric ice cream maker. And for those of you that are old enough to remember the old crank ones, you got to crank about five hours to get two tablespoons of ice cream, okay? So I'm sitting out there going, this is horrible, you know? But here's the, the second thing. I said three things. I meant two things. Here's the second thing I want to tell you. When I took a bite of that homemade strawberry ice cream, I was reminded of God's love. And every time I pass a Baskin-Robbins, and every time I pass a TCBY, and every time I pass a Dairy Queen, I am reminded at the goodness and faithfulness of God because I've seen him do it again before, and I know he'll do it again. Now listen, you don't always get what you pray for. You may pray for a million dollars or a Lamborghini, and you may not get either one of them. Because, see, it wasn't about the ice cream maker. It was about God showing himself and showing his glory. And God changed my life that day. I've never prayed the same since that day. You see, what David had seen, he had seen the hand of God move in such a way that he was changed. And the whole army was scared to death of that giant. And to David, he thought, why? He's defying our God. Why would one of you not be man enough to stand up before him? Because it's not about me. It's about what God's going to do to show his glory. You see, David was a man of faith. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, And what more can I say? This is the faith chapter. Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. In the book of Hebrews, in the chapter of faith, it talks about David and that he was a man of faith. See, God loves that. God loves when we can't see him and we don't see that he's working, but we trust that he's there. Almost two years ago, I did a funeral for a couple in our church that lost their two-month-old baby. And that morning, I texted the man, and I said, buddy, today I am so sorry that you're walking through this. I want you to know I love you. I'm here for you, and I'm praying for you. And this is his response. His response was, I don't understand, and I don't know what God is doing, but I'm choosing to trust him. Those words have stuck with me for two years because he's a man of faith. So when we look at a man after God's own heart, I believe it's an obedient man and a man of faith. So I want you to answer this question. 
What does it look like to live out faith practically? See, a lot of times we talk about these things in Scripture, and we talk about them in a philosophical way that oftentimes don't affect our lives. So what does it actually mean to live out our faith today? We don't have Goliath standing before us. We've not been told we're going to be thrown into the uh, fiery furnace. We've not been told we're going to be thrown into the lion's den. So what does it look like for you and I? What does it look like for B.J. Berryhill to live out his faith today? I want you to talk about it around the table. Ready, set, go. All right, guys, let's bring it back to the platform for just a few more minutes. I love that. One of the things that I love about David when I look at him is I hear God say he's a man after my own heart, but yet you see him do all these things. I mean, he sins, he makes foolish decisions, but yet he comes back to the Lord and he's repentant. So that's the third thing I want us to see tonight is a man after God's own heart is an obedient man, is a man of faith, and is a man of repentance. It's a man of repentance. I want you to think just for a moment about Peter. Remember the disciple Peter? who denied the Lord, denied knowing the Lord. Remember that? When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and he was kind of hanging around in the shadows and somebody said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? He said, I, I don't know the man. I've never met him. He, he did that three times. You remember what's interesting about that is Jesus had just told him, you're going to deny me. And he said, not me, Lord. I would never do that. And yet within moments, within hours, he's denying even knowing the Lord. We look at that and we look at Peter and say, what in the world? But then we looked that Peter went out and he did what? He wept. He was broken. That the Lord had said, this is what you're going to do, and then he followed through with it. He was broken at his disobedience to the one that he had followed for three years. Then you get to the book of Acts. Aren't you thankful? It says Peter stood up and he preached, and that day, 3,000 plus people got saved and were added to the church. Aren't you thankful that God can take a dirty, rotten sinner and out of the ashes, he can raise up something beautiful? Aren't you thankful that when we look at David's life, when we look at the life of Peter, when we look at the life of a lot of these men that we read in Scripture who just messed it up, who made, we call them mistakes, they sinned. That's what it is. And we've got to do that. We've got to quit calling sin a mistake and start calling it sin. Sin is sin. If God says don't do it, don't do it. If God says to do it, do it. Quit saying, well, you know, I, I made a mistake. No, you didn't. You sinned. What you need to do is quit moping around about it. You need to repent of that sin, get right with the Lord, and then let it go. Don't worry about it anymore. When you look in there in Psalm 51, David says, restore me. Restore me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He says, and then I will go and tell people about you. David had an understanding that God could use him. And David did not want the Lord to leave him. He says in there, he says, don't take your spirit away from me. Why do you think David prayed that? He saw it happen in Saul's life. He knew exactly what that looked like, and he was, he was horrified. And he was repentant before the Lord. He went before the Lord. It says in Psalm one. 1957 through 59, it says, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I thought about my ways and turned my steps back to your decrees. 
What did he do? I was walking my own way, but I turned back to you. What did he do? He repented. Brother Steve talks about it all the time. Walking one way, turn around and walk in the other. What did he do? He said, I was going after my own ways, but I repented, and I went back to your decrees. And so that's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see right there, it says, I have promised to keep your words. He is an obedient man, a man after God's own heart. It says that with all my heart, he was a man of faith. He was going after the Lord with everything he had. And then we see it there. He he turned my steps back to your decrees. He was a man of repentance. As horrible of a thing as he did, and I know some of you are sitting in here and saying, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Here's the bottom line. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is what he's done. And what he did was he went to the cross. And they nailed him up there, and while he was up on the cross... He looked at the old boys below him that were gambling over his clothes and laughing about the fact that they had nailed him to the cross, and what did he pray over them? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then he prays to Telestai. It is finished. It is paid in full. So don't you dare say what you've done is too bad or too big for God to pay for it because it's already paid for. He already has the victory, and as a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that you and I can walk in Christ's victory because he already has the victory. It starts with repentance. A man after God's own heart is an obedient man, a man of faith, and he's also a man of repentance. So here's what I want you to do as we get ready to close in just a few minutes. I want you to think about Psalm 51. I want you to listen to just a few of the verses in here when we talk about this idea of repentance and really where David was. Now, we're going to dig into this much later into the semester, and we're going to really unpack this chapter. But listen to just a couple of the verses. He says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. He was serious about this. How many times have you been guilty of praying a prayer like this? Lord, forgive me for the sins that I've done today, and you've moved on. Let me just be quite honest with you. If at the end of every day or at the end of every week, whatever you've said to your wife or whatever you've said to your friend that you hurt their feelings or upset them or made them mad, you just said, forgive me for anything I've done wrong to you. Do you think that's going to go well for you? No, because you're going to hear this. Well, well, well what, what, what am I forgiving you for? And then you're going to have to say something like this. Well, you, you, you know what I did. And then she's going to say, I, I know what I did, but, but what, what, do you, what did I do? I want, I want to make sure that you know what you did. And we're guilty of praying that way. Lord, just forgive me for my sins. Here's the deal. Quit just bunching them all together and making light of it because it's serious. He prays, he said, against you, against a holy God, I have sinned. And he says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. He says in verses 6 through 7, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Here's what basically he's saying. He's saying, I have done everything wrong. You have done everything right. Please forgive me and please use me again. And then look what he says in verse 10. He says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Here's what I know. The book of James says this. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. 
It's a promise from the word. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't have some promises from the word that you're holding on to, you need to get out your Bible and you need to start writing some of these down and you need to start claiming some of these verses. Because that's a verse when I read the Bible in the morning, I say, Lord, you tell me. If I draw near to you, you will draw near to me. So as I read your word, God, with everything I have, I'm drawing near to you. And it may just be for a few moments. But Lord, I'm here. And I thank you that you tell me If I draw near to you, you will draw near to me. What is he doing? He's repenting before a holy God. So we we don't have quite enough time for our last table discussion, so it's definitely not going to be nine minutes. I just want you to take three or four minutes, and I want you to answer the question, what does true repentance look like, and why is that often a struggle? What does true repentance look like, and why is that often a struggle? I'm going to start the timer. I'm going to go down a little bit on the time here. We're just going to go about four minutes. Ready, set, go. All right, guys, let's bring it back. I've got some more scripture I want to share with you, but we're just about out of time. So I want to give you some homework for next week. You say, homework, listen, if you have time, I'd encourage you to do this, okay? Here's what I'd like for you to do for next week. I'd like for you to read 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'd like for you to work on three questions. Number one, what is... David's response to God's call. Now, just so you know, this is when Samuel anoints David as king. It's not when David becomes king. It's when Samuel anoints him as king. I want you to read that passage and just see what is David's response to this anointing, to God's call. The second question is, what has God called me to do? See, I believe with all my heart, God has given every man something to do. He's called us to something. So what has God called me to do? And thirdly, how am I fulfilling that call? I talked to a guy this past week. He said, I felt like the Lord told me to do something 10 years ago, and I've been running from it, and I just keep beating myself up over it. And this is what I said to him. I said, quit beating yourself up over it and just do it. Just do it. Just do it today. So that's your homework. Men, thank you for being here tonight. I want to invite you and encourage you to be here tomorrow morning. The doors will open at 545. Breakfast is $6 in the Fellowship Hall. Brother Steve is starting a brand new book called Titus 10, written by Josh Smith, a pastor in Georgia. And you'll hear more about that in the next uh, couple, well, next few hours if you come in the morning. I'd love for you to be there. We start singing at 620. We sing from 620 to 630. He teaches from 630. We are out the door at seven on the dot. I'd love for you to be there and be a part of it. Let's pray, then you take all the time you want, and I hope you have a great week. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these men. I pray your blessings upon them. God, I pray you'll take them. And Lord, I pray, Lord, including myself, if there's anything that you need to break us over, if there's anything we need to repent of, God, I pray you'll bring that to light, and that we will follow through with obedience to repent of that thing so that we can be used by you. We love you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.